Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. My guest today is uh, Dr. Mike Martin, who is a former British Army officer and who has uh, since become a prominent speaker and writer on conflict, uh, particularly its causes. He has published several books on the subject, most notably one which has landed him in some hot water, as we'll uh, shortly discuss. Uh, It's titled An Intimate War, An Oral History of the Hellman Conflict, 1978-2012. He's also recently published a book called Why We Fight, which is a deep dive into the evolutionary reasons for war and conflict. More recently, Mike has also been engaged by the Australian Defence Force to deliver a course on the impact cultural understanding can have on a conflict. Uh, And this is a way to improve our collective understanding of the conflicts we have been a part of and are likely to be involved with in the future. Mike, thanks for joining me. Hey, Maz. Thanks for having me. Before we get into your experiences of war and the subsequent research, uh, maybe we'll go back to what made you initially join the military. You know, I think uh, I think I'd always wanted to go to war. I think, like, well, I'm sure many young boys have this aged mm. ten or something. You know, they all play commandos or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't know. I like. I obviously did that, but I also had quite a deep interest in war, which has now become my profession. But it it. I guess I felt driven to it in, in the same way. I, I guess that people are, are driven to become a doctor or a teacher. Like it's, it's a vocation, right? Yeah. Warrior is a kind of ancient vocation in the human species, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I can personally relate to that as well. I think uh, as a, as a young fellow, I was, my first title was soldier, veteran Masley soldier. I was three. So I can certainly, I can certainly connect to that. Uh, but but you, <laughs> mind you, this was in Bosnia, right? This was in my Bosnia. friends used to call yeah. me command. Well, no, but my, right, right. Yeah. And my friends used to call me commando Michael or a commando uh, right. right. So that was, you know, they, I guess they were taking the piss, but, but you know, there's a, there's the reason why taking the piss works is because there's, there's some truth in it, isn't there? So, yeah, and, and I guess it's something one identifies with, right? And it's especially when it can, becomes a, a, a name or, or a title or a nickname that one associates with. I mean, it's a, uh, I know it certainly was for me and, and, and uh, has followed me throughout my life and, and ultimately made me join the military. But I think, um, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, an, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, I, I've, I've joined the military after I've experienced war and, and those listeners in, of my podcast will already know that, um, you know, I've experienced the Bosnian conflict uh, to, an ex- to an extent as a, as a young kid, which shaped my orientation towards conflict. What's shaped your orientation towards conflict? I mean, you said you kind of wanted to, um, from an early age, wanted to be a warrior, uh, Commando Mike. Uh, is that was that the trigger? Was that what actually, you know, you dove into the, the yeah, deep murky waters? I didn't know. It was uh, I, so I, I read a lot. Loads of people read a lot, but I, I I I really was and am, I guess, a bookworm. And um, you know, when I say I was interested in war as a youngster. It wasn't really so much the kind of 
bang bang blowing stuff up shooting people's side of warfare that like obviously that's really exciting and you know having done some of that i can attest to the fact that that's that's mm. just one of the most exciting things if not the most exciting thing that you can do um but it was actually the I guess the political side of warfare or where war meets society or the negotiations that surround violence or military conflict, I guess. So, you know, the books I, I read when I was a youngster were often like things like King Solomon's Mines or Beaugest or or, or the, you, you know, books about political officers or, or like Wilfred Thesiger, stuff like that, you know, where you've got a kind of combination of exploration, both like physical and over the terrain, but also actually mostly societal, yeah. combined with speaking the local languages and carrying out some kind of task. And, uh, you know, I'm not obviously defending... Mm colonialism most of these books reflective of the colonial era right but but they were trying to carry out some kind of task and they were doing it in a particularly like politically astute way i guess Mm -hmm. through knowledge of the local societies and uh you know ability to understand and navigate through that terrain and occasionally that meant using violence and occasionally it didn't and but it was that i guess that border between politics and speaking and war and fighting i guess has always fascinated me like it's a it's a threshold that uh is probably not as distinct as we imagine like i I think we particularly particularly us in kind of western advanced economies tend to think of war as an on or off thing like there either is peace or there's war Whereas it's not that, that threshold I see is obviously stretched out, um, you know, because violence is a method of communication and all yeah. those sorts of things. And so people use that to send messages when they're unable to send other messages or they use violence in combination with messages that they've delivered mm-hmm. verbally. And so I guess that fascination with war really at heart is a kind of fascination with humans and war is just an ex an extreme environment that brings out some of some of the more extremes as extreme aspects of humanity or i guess makes them more obvious to see because Mm. people are forced Mm. to take positions in war that they wouldn't otherwise take maybe and so you strip away war strips away if you like the airs and graces and lays bare the raw humanity and i don't by the by using the term humanity there i don't mean oh he's a you know that was a humanitarian mm-hmm. gesture i don't mm-hmm. mean it in that sense mm-hmm. by humanity i mean the raw humanity in all of its uh glory whether good or bad you, you know the the rawness of human emotions i think are laid bare in a conflict and and through studying conflicts you can actually learn a huge amount about humanity and Mm. about society and about the societies we've created and how we interact with others and how those societies interact with other societies and so on and so forth yeah it removes Um, i guess the that that fragile veneer of society that we uh hold so dear to our hearts i mean and i think uh, uh you know you know hit the nail on the head with with war brings it down to the 
to the you know component parts of what it means to be human right we look at coronavirus in australia you know we we saw the fragile this idea of a peaceful democratic society just shatter over toilet paper um and i think that's a i mean it's 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 laughable but i think it's it speaks to that very point right that uh it is something so fundamentally human um uh which is which is fascinating i think that's a far deeper more nuanced uh appreciation of 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 uh, war and conflict um, that most people hold, and also a much more, uh, I think, noble reason to to get into the profession of arms. And I think it's important to note here that uh, you know you deployed to Afghanistan, but you're also a fluent Pashto speaker, right? How, yeah, yeah. How did that come about? I mean, it, it, so, so we'll talk about the actual conflict and, and Afghan uh, later. But how did why did you even learn the language? Yeah. And, and how 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 easy or hard is it to even you know become fluent yeah. in language? Yeah, yeah. So if I could just come to that in two secs, because you yeah. just said something there that made me think of this kind of quite important point, which is that there's a tradition of kind of philosopher soldiers or soldier scholars in many societies. And often some of the most philosophical, the deepest thinkers I've met have been soldiers because they've been faced with this rawness of humanity. And, and I think that we, we, we denigrate that or we ignore that or we don't sustain that and support that at our peril. Because if you don't have people thinking deeply about conflict, and by that I don't mean like professional military education, yeah, like yeah, yeah. I don't tactics, think that really yeah, touch, yeah. it just doesn't touch the sides. It, I mean thinking really deeply about the undercurrents and the fundamentals of conflict. I think you have a huge problem. It's a bit like it's a bit like you know was it was it Trotsky's or Lenin's? I'm not sure who it's attributed to, but that phrase, you know, if you're not, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. And I think that we, this idea of the soldier scholar or the philosopher soldier or whatever you want to call it, actually is something that we need to nurture and encourage amongst our soldiers and particularly amongst our politicians ultimately you know in our in our you know in the uk and australia in in, in democratic societies as the politicians that um, make fun of call okay so how did i learn push to uh so, i so, sorry uh, we'll, yeah we'll just we'll, we'll just come back to that yeah yeah, yeah, yeah we'll just, <laughs> no, no, because that's a really interesting point i mean i think it's worth exploring that um particularly the notion about our politicians because i guess perhaps the point you're making is that they are the ones that are sending uh, uh, people in uniform, men and women, to war, uh, but potentially they don't have the context of what war is about. Uh, if they, if they, if they are not, say, a philosopher, soldier, um, or you know, uh, 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 somebody who's who's had any experience uh, of that rawness of war, is that is that what you mean? Yeah, I think I think there's something that you can't gain about war without experiencing it. Um, and even if you do experience it, you, maybe you haven't like done the requisite reading and so on and so forth to kind of, you know, interpret those feelings. But I guess, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, there is a technical way of looking at war, right? We can, we can look at it in terms of technological acquisition, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, statistics like the, you know, the, our tank and their tank and weapon yeah. ranges and 
we can look at it in terms of you know signals intelligence and networks that build up target packs and all that kind of stuff there's all the, there's lots of very technical disciplines in war right like medicine uh but in medicine the doctor needs to understand all the technical disciplines but they also need to have a bedside manner and judgment to know which of those technical disciplines to use when treating the patient okay and i think it's the same in war war has lots of science and technical disciplines in it but actually there's an art to it and by art what we mean is there's something that's not rational something that is emotional and something that is very hard to learn from a book you might be able to uh talk eloquently uh, uh, about uh the the experience of war from an intellectual standpoint right but until you've really experienced it it's hard for you to actually understand how that affects the outcome and the reason it's important is kind of stuff like if we go like i don't know let's look at clausewitz for instance right mm-hmm. this kind of guy that we go back to and uh, you know and he was a philosopher of war really he, he was you know and the reason his stuff is still read is because it wasn't focusing on that technical minutiae of war it was focusing on the undercurrents and he so he spoke about the fog of war right and if you can't understand how the fog of war affects what's going on and how that may end up with suboptimal decisions being made that then end up to situations spiraling out of control and therefore alliances breaking down or reforming mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. I'm just giving you a quick example, yeah, but yeah, like, of course, yeah. without having that emotional understanding of how the system itself will behave when it's put under stress or how people will behave when it's put under stress or without ever having experienced what it's like to fight for your own survival then you are unlikely to be able to make good judgments about war and you know a key a key 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 example out of the recent wars that we've had so iraq afghanistan libya blah 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 um syria you know it goes on yemen uh is this over we over ascribe um the importance to we overscribe importance to ideology mm. um we you see it all the time people talk about you know this ideology this right-wing ideology or this muslim fundamentalism or whatever driving people to commit violent acts or it, you know the extreme suicide bombing but yeah. you know but we're talking about the taliban you know and to take an example that I know very well, you know, described as this fundamentalist organization that's intent on imposing. Yeah. And which is such a beautiful black and white narrative, right? It's so easy. It's so easy, right? And and I I would understand it if the politicians were using it to sell the war to Western publics. Mm, mm, mm. But it's not that. We, we you know, we've drunk our own Kool-Aid and we think that that is what is causing the war and therefore in order to win the war we need to you know do things that end up denigrating and defeating that ideology but that's not it yeah that's not it anyone who has fought for survival of themselves for themselves or their family understands very clearly that ideology 
comes well below survival. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's a that's a that's a really powerful insight, and it reminds me. I mean, when we were in Germany as refugees, my old man was uh, in Bosnia on the front lines because obviously, you know, he couldn't leave because he was a fighting age male. He would have been in you know, a first checkpoint. He would have been killed. So he fought yeah. on the front lines. And while we were in Germany, I was this, uh, you know, between the ages of, uh, you know, ten and a half and fourteen or something like that. Um, young man wanting to you know becoming a man really wanting to do my part and you know i was i was almost very rebellious i was hating the serbs i was hating the croats um Mm -hmm. you know i was fighting germans just because that's what you did you know it was just this rage and anger within me uh and when my dad finally came out and joined us um he saw this in me this this rage this hate towards this, these these groups, like in in this instance, Serbs and Croats, who, you know, throughout the Bosnian conflict, uh, you know, either shot at each other or shot at you know Bosnians or whatever. Uh, and I thought, yeah. in my deluded uh, sense, that I was, uh, you know, espousing some uh, notion of idealism or ideology and to to stand up for my people. And you know, the first yeah. thing my dad said is, uh, you know, do not hate any of those sides. Uh, I've shot at both. Uh, they've all shot at me and I don't hate them. Uh, it's, it, it's not about that. That is just what's kind of superimposed uh, on our beliefs. And that, that was a really shaping moment because that kind of flipped that very narrative that you're talking about. It flipped it upside down because here I yeah. thought I knew yeah. the answer. I thought exactly, yeah. I, I thought I knew who the enemy was, whatever enemy even means, right? Yeah. But it was flipped yeah. uh, just by that very notion. I think it's a very powerful insight and one that we so quickly forget because it seems to be a simple solution uh, to a very, very complex problem. But it leads you're me to another question. Yeah, so you're lucky to have had the dad that you had. Truly, yeah, 100%. Because, yeah, absolutely. Because I have seen the other, you know, the alternative in, in some of my friends and counterparts who whose dads... Uh, uh, didn't have that understanding and realization, no, but embraced, and yeah, exactly. Embrace that narrative and fundamentally pass that narrative on to the next generation, which keeps it alive, right? And and you know, that's... but why do we, you know, why do we embrace societal group narratives? We part of the reason we do it is because we're terrified, and when you're terrified and scared, the very very natural evolutionary driven instinct Mm. is to group together with Mm. others Mm. in Mm. order to you know protection in numbers and so we lump towards we lump ourselves in with a group narrative Mm. and we genuinely consciously think we believe it whether we do or not is a kind of we can talk about cognition but like we genuinely believe those group narratives because through espousing them we're articulating our membership of those groups. We're mm. making it clear to everyone that that's we're Bosnian, right? And that, you know, because we believe X, Y, and Z about the Croats and the Serbs, we're Bosnian. Therefore, and that soothes you emotionally and calms you because you then feel like you've got a tribe that's going to yeah. protect you when it goes wrong. And yeah. if you think about it, if everyone's doing that, then we understand how polarization occurs and how spirals happen. And I think this is one of the the key subtext of uh, of certainly your your the the why we fight book right that this is this sense of mm. this mm. sense of belonging uh, mm. uh is 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 a key human driver right it's a huge it's it's a motivator um yep. you know and ultimately becomes a motivator towards violence is that is that right um yeah well basically you've um you have this mechanism 
you know, so, right, your brain, right, has evolved to pursue certain evolutionary goals, like finding a mate, finding food, so on and so forth, right? And the reason you pursue them is because they help you survive and reproduce, which is the whole point of evolution. And so one of those things that we pursue is belonging to a coherent social mm. group because it protects you, as we've just discussed. It, uh, through specialization, you get a greater share of resources than if you you know a group of 10 is able to you know one can hunt one can whatever and and then it gives you more access to like a greater variety of sexual partners than if you're kind of you know so that's the kind of that gets you out the incest trap but also at a greater scale gives you a much greater range of sexual partners uh greater choice and so we have this kind of drive towards belonging, but the same mechanism that drives us towards belonging is also the one that divides the world into in-groups and out-groups. Because if you think about it, we could never have a mechanism that said group with everyone because then people, a lineage would evolve that takes advantage of that mechanism and everyone else and the whole system would collapse. So the only reason you, the only way you can evolve a stable mechanism amongst humans that in fact, amongst mammals mammals have the same mechanism um so you see this behavior involves chimpanzees whatever the only way you can evolve this grouping mechanism is if you put boundaries on it so what creates in groups also creates out groups at the same mm. time so that drop and it's the same mechanism the same hormonal pathways and so what you find is that the more people are pulled into in groups i am bosnian the more that they a denigrate or espouse hatred towards outgroups, right? In terms of the unconscious mechanism. Now, of course, mm. our conscious brain can come along and try and smooth the edges of that. And, you know, we're all educated and liberal. So I know that, you know, I'm British. I know that French people are just the same as us, but maybe deep down, you know. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. No, no, I know understand, but point, it came down to it. There's, yeah. an, there's an unconscious mechanism that is grouping the world into in-groups and out-groups and it ha- this has the basis for all the, you know racism well, social identity theory right i mean that's social identity, yeah. exactly yeah and um so and, and they interact you know the more pressure you're putting under from an out-group the more you coalesce on your in-group and the more you coalesce in your in-group the more you project denigration or hatred or whatever you know negative feelings onto the out group and there's a bunch of other sort of in-group out mechanisms but that's the main one and so you know what that's what you find in war it's like a ratchet it was what you find in politics as well but like it's most extreme in war it's a ratchet and it clicks slightly tighter every time a leader does something or there's some sort of incident you know and it clicks 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 slightly tighter yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess the, I guess uh, uh, it's it, it's about how it leads to conflict, and I mean, and it's very much yeah. you know yeah, you yeah, you yeah. you've just you've yeah. just hit the nail on the head there. I mean, and and as you know, the more we the more we identify with our own in group, the more we exaggerate the likeness of our group, and also the more we exaggerate the differences between us and whoever that perceived out group is. Absolutely, and we see within our in group, we see heterogeneity, so we can see the differences in our in group the fine differences but the out group are all the same they are all yeah 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 yeah, that's right yeah and and i mean i think and this is this is maybe a a good good way and a good place to to come back into your uh you know your learning push to because you ultimately became right so if we talk you, you stepped outside of the narrative uh of you know the british military officer uh and yeah. you you know 
almost stepped over into a completely different narrative, and that is the the local narrative of the local uh, Afghani experience. So, firstly, what, what what was the reason that that you learnt the language, and then later, um, you know, how did that shape your understanding of of the environment? So, I was in the British Army Reserve, and uh, I'd just been living in South America and I came back and I was trying to find a job in the UK and I wanted to kind of like, I wanted to have a job that had travel and languages, mm-hmm. uh, abilities to learn language. So had you learned any languages, by, uh, other languages by this stage? Yeah, it's French and Spanish. Right, okay. And okay. Um, I'd just been living in South America for 15 yeah, years. Yeah, right, okay. And... Um, yeah, and then this, so I guess like many armies, you can move in between the reserves and the regulars, you know, depending on what you're doing in stage of life. And and there was a scheme where you could go in full time for three years, um, which I eventually extended to six and a half. You can go in full time for three years and you do 15 month course on either Pushtu, Arabic or Farsi, because at that time, Iraq and Afghanistan were going on and um then you do two tours two six month tours um supposedly as an interpreter and then that'd be it you'd be done so and why was i driven to do that well we've kind of spoken about you know when i was growing up what i wanted and i was just like wow someone's going to pay me to learn and then they said what language you want to learn and i said push to uh and they were like why is that and i was like well just seems like it will be the most interesting one and it probably wasn't the most practical one in the sense of like, if I'd learned Arabic, I could have then, you know, gone on and I don't know, done business in the Arab world or something, or, you know, whatever, you know, Persia is an ancient civilization. Pushtu was a yeah. tribal language spoken by 60 million, mostly illiterate people. And I thought that will do. <laughs> um, well, it turned and, out to be a sound choice, right? Ultimately. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, all history makes sense. In the yeah, it's all in perspective. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, and so I did that, and I did my course, and that was fine. And then they they had like <laughs> the, the army had hired taxi drivers from Slough because they were the only Afghans they could find to teach us Pushtu. So it was kind of pretty chaotic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so like, so highly like, qualified teachers, right? <laughs> no, none of them were language teachers. No, what they had was they were native speakers, and then you know a few of us banded together and like put some rigor into it. <laughs> yeah um and yeah and so then so i went to afghanistan supposedly as an interpreter that was completely like very very quickly that it's just so stupid that we're the british army was paying i mean it's kind of indicative of the whole approach but we you know we were paying brit officers to learn a language then go be interpreters but from almost all things you can buy an interpreter in kabul like an afghan you know and so anyway but whatever so i through a series of events i managed to get out in about three weeks i got out of that and then was kind of talked myself into um trialing a new role because i I basically said to my boss who was this colonel um we we don't have a clue what's going on in Afghan society. Like when I'd gone to Afghanistan, I mean, this is the thing when I, before I went there, I had this in my mind's eye, I had this idea of all the books I'd read when I was growing up, like, Oh, it's going to be so sophisticated. We're going to have really good knowledge of what's going on in the society. We're going to be really carefully like 
you know, pulling the strings and like, we're going to be, you know, helping advance the African government and all the good stuff. Like I was a true believer. Oh, what an illusion, got, right? <laughs> and I got there and I was just like, yeah. oh my, I was, it was stunning. It was absolutely stunning how poor mm. the intelligence picture was. And by intelligence, I mean in a broader sense of actually what was going on in the society. Like they were pretty good at knowing like, yeah, the, the micro level, there's, there's a, who's, who's moving. Well, or like there's a bomb attack, yeah. you know, there's going to be a, you know, someone, there'll be some faction, like in a village, yeah. right? Someone will plant a bomb, an IED, and like someone else in the village will hate him. So they'll shop him to us, right? So we had a really good idea of like, oh, there's going to be an IED on that road or whatever, right? Uh, but, uh, and that's easy. Like if you offer a reward to your informants for every successful IED that's brought in, that's so easy. But, did we have an idea even of those factions that were causing that no and any idea of the tribal dynamics and like it was just unbelievable how poor and how simplistic and you'd read these operations orders for like you know there's this operation going on here we're going to get into this village and blah blah, blah. and you look at it and go wow is this like a pastiche of an orwellian like you know we're going to go in and spread the will of the African yeah. governor. I was like, yeah. who believes this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And anyway, so I took. Like but I said, but I we believed it, right? I mean, we we believed it. I mean, we really, <laughs> like. I mean, as in, you know. And, and, did you? I, did you believe it? Well, well, well. I'll, I'll be totally frank. I mean, I I never bought into the 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 narratives because I think I was maybe. Um, maybe I was I was fortunate in having experienced the Balkans or having had an intimate knowledge of the Balkans to know that, you know, nothing is what it seems. Um, but you know, I think. Uh, you know, I was part of it, certainly. I, uh, and while I try to try to induce some level of context uh, in at least the reporting that I was responsible for, uh, without a shadow of a doubt, I mean, I, I was also dumbfounded by some of the things we were doing uh, as well, just like what, what you're saying. Uh, but without a doubt, you kind of... In, did, did you not also not dig into it too much because actually subconsciously you knew that if you dig, dug into it too much, it wouldn't add up? You know exactly so where it's going to go. It's much easier yeah. to psychologically defend yourself from that dissonance. Like we all, we're all dissonance reducers as human beings, right? And you knew that what you were seeing on the ground didn't necessarily match the narrative. So you thought, you know what? I'm just not going to worry too much about the narrative and just get on with stuff because I'm just creating mental... Yeah. And you also, and it's also part of the belonging, right? It's, it's as, as you're talking, you, you, you know, you're there uh, as part of a, a particular in-group, right? And, yeah, and right. it's a lot easier to, um, and this is not, you know, I, I sleep easy at night because I, 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 I'm comfortable that the decisions I was responsible for and decisions I made, I, I've done them with uh, uh, my own ethics in mind. Um, so, you know, there's, you know, this is not some dark disclosure but i think you you know you you end up being part of a much bigger system uh that you know it's a big machine they're just rolling and 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 you know you can fall on your sword very very easily uh if you so choose uh but then you're not then you become part of the out group right you 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 ultimately get banished by your uh by your chosen in group and you you could describe the same event an attack on a village, training the police, paying a source for information, building a well. These are all activities that occurred uh, in southern Afghanistan. And you can describe all of those events in about three or four different moral frameworks that give you slightly different answers. And it depends on what level of Zoom you're looking at it, right? 
And so, you know, the idea of a just war is, uh, I think, incredibly difficult to apply to, (laughs) well, most conflicts. I think there are very few conflicts that you can apply the just war concept to, actually. Because it's who's justice, right? I mean, and and who interprets the justice? (laughs) Indeed. Indeed it is. (laughs) That's uh, that, that's absolutely fascinating. So, so just to now get back, so you you ended up right. So you were fluent speaker, and you were advising some pretty senior officers. Um, yeah. How how did the story unfold uh, from there? So, so as a result of um, throwing my toys out of the pram at the beginning of my first tour, um, they um, basically said, "Okay, look, you've got six months to." just go and try and shape this job like make this job a thing right tell us what it looks like and um i had a really good guy who was my boss colonel and he's who's now um it is heartening to see that the good ones do rise he's now a three-star general and um he um told the battle group that i was working with to kind of facilitate my you know if your job is talking to people then you need to like get around be protected you know all that kind of stuff right um so that was cool and then see and basically the conclusion that we came to that the role of that person that officer who spoke pushed to and had a good knowledge of like afghan tribal society i suppose in someone like hellman's was their job was to build relationships with notables in the local community uh tribal leaders drug lords landowners militia commanders you know all the usual council members whatever and then through building those relationships just leverage them to uh both gather information on the society so understand what's going on in the society but also to uh Try and influence that size. It was a two-way communication role, i.e., it's a political officer, right? It's the same job that you know the Brits and, to a lesser degree, the French did for hundreds of years in all the far-flung bits of their empire, and other lots of other empires have done it as well. And again, you know, obviously, I'm not defending colonialism, but given that task that was the way they came up with um uh carrying it out and you know i'm not really defending the war in afghanistan yeah, i think it was yeah, bullshit but yeah. given that task the best way of carrying that out is to generate people with expertise and language skills and so they can build links with the local community um at the end of that six months um we'd had a good few we'd had a good run. Like it seemed to work. Like we weren't blundering about so much. We really were starting to understand what was going on a bit more nuanced. It wasn't kind of black and white government Taliban, all that kind of stuff. Um, and coincidentally, like a really senior general from the UK came to visit a guy called David Richards, who ended up being the chief of defense staff. And he, the Colonel was like, I'd like you to give him a brief when he gets here on this. And coincidentally in the UK, they'd started a project team that was 
had basically been set the task to how do we understand more about Afghan society? So these things came together. He said, ah, oh, brilliant. Can you can you write me something that I can give to them? And I'd already written a paper. So I said, he gave that to him. And that was right at the end of my tour. About a week later, I was getting off a plane in Oxfordshire and I switched my phone on and there was a message from the guy running that project team in the MOD mm-hmm. um, who said, we've just been giving you a paper by General Richards. Could you, um, I know you're on leave, I'm really sorry, but do you mind coming in? So I went in and then that was it really. They basically took that paper, turned it into uh, what became DCSU, which is the Defence Cultural Specialist Unit. Um, I spent that summer kind of working with them and with various other bits of the MOD to flesh it out. And then I went back out there for another long tour, like a 10, 11, no, it was a year, year, the year long tour. in that September, so I got back in May or something. No. And so I then went out and then to follow me later on were other linguists. Obviously, the linguist training pipelines kind of slow, takes a long time. So they then started like sending out linguists to me in ones and twos and I trained them up. And uh, Right. So you uh, trained the, the, the follow-on the follow guys as well. Yeah. Know. So that summer we ran... Uh, an, um, a kind of trial course. What would the course look like for DCSU, which looks nothing like the one that you and I worked on um, for the Australian government? Uh, you know, it's 10 years of benefit. But we ran that course yeah. and then, but that wasn't really working. It didn't quite touch the right notes. But so what they used to come out to theatre and I used to train them and they used to give them a three day package and like, you know, I was just like, give me linguists and I can I can turn them into officers who are linguists. And so then I sat at brigade and then we had one of those in each battle group, basically. And slowly we started developing, you know, what was going on. And look, I don't want to overblow what we achieved. We didn't change the course of anything, um, but we did make it a bit less shit. Um, you know, the strategy was set in london and washington and that wasn't going to change but given those set of tasks we i think made our activities a little more nuanced which means that um you know there's less afghans that are dead yeah there's less less brits and aussies americans with coalition soldiers who are dead and so you know i think from that point of view it was a success but i you know, like i said i don't want to overblow it like how we change the whole no of course yeah. Yeah. No, i understand it and i mean like you said the policy was set uh, you know and as we spoke before uh, ultimately by those who don't know what war is about and never felt war uh, which is uh, you know perhaps a separate uh, much longer discussion but i think what's what 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 would be good for me to hear is um, particularly as someone who's also learned other languages and learned to live in different cultural codes, so to speak, or cultural programs. When you mm. learn Pushtu and you, you know, started speaking to the locals, mm. you, I, I guess, you know, I'm guessing I know the answer. I mean, you started uncovering something you already knew you would uncover and that is a completely different story. But um, to what extent mm. was that uh, true? You know, th- was this kind of an aha moment? Holy shit, this, w- w- we've got this all wrong. Uh, because I suspect you you had an inkling uh, that that is the case, uh, and then from there I guess it was a matter of 
proving that hypothesis to be true. Is that, is that how it unfolded or, or what was that experience like? Uh, well, it took four years, right? I mean, I was in and out of Afghanistan for four years because I did a couple of years in uniform and then, or like 18 months in uniform and then after that the army paid for my phd to go because i was basically gonna leave the army to go and do a phd and they were like don't leave we'll pay for your phd stay in the army so then i wore jeans and a t-shirt and went back to afghanistan to work as an advisor for the general but also to collect my phd research which was basically interviewing but just carrying on talking to the same network that yeah. I've been speaking yeah. To. yeah just now recording um, <laughs> yeah well making notes but yeah yeah and um so I, I knew right from the start that what the narrative was didn't match what I was seeing. I, that was immediately obvious, almost within a week of getting into theatre. I was like, what is this? Mm-hmm. Could I articulate that in any other way than to say that's bullshit? Mm-hmm. No. And I think many people don't get beyond that because they don't have the luxury of, you know, the time to explore it like I was. Like I I literally created my own job to allow myself to explore this problem, which the army, you know, created the space to allow me to do because they found that useful. And then I went on and did a PhD on the the same question. What is this war about? And so over time, I became, I guess, more articulate about what was going on but really and but it's not just that you know so many things i had to bring together like there was the language skills there was the network i was building there was lots of reading about afghanistan in general like in terms of or on how or the south of afghanistan in particular like but tribal system politics religion mm, 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 mm. you know all that stuff drugs trade all these different things that you need to kind of understand what the dynamics are so what you might call regional expertise and then, in addition, I had to do a huge amount of genning up on because I knew nothing about it. Like all these, all this different kind of conflict, um, academic scholarship, like you know, civil wars, counterinsurgency, you know, all that kind of stuff. All the stuff like Clausewitzian stuff, like all that stuff. So a huge amount of conflict scholarship as well. Um, and so uh, bringing all those to, and and you know, I'd go to Afghanistan and and work and read and then i come back and do a period of study and then i'd learn a bit more later and do more later. then i come and you know write some stuff and so there was a constant process of doing and thinking and writing and reading that went on for four five i mean in total i was involved in afghanistan from the beginning when i started learning british to the end in about seven years yeah right okay and well i guess i'm still involved in afghanistan in that sense but um and i you know i think it took a lot of that time to pick apart all of that stuff and and really defining it down to what it is now which is kind of that was not a black white thing that was driven by land and water and very kind of parochial concerns um you know um revenge feuds all that kind of stuff that was what drove most of the violence and people selected ideologies in order to give themselves cover to carry out that violence and you know and then the interaction understanding the interaction between outsiders who supply 
kind of the ideology and the funding for the fighting and then the insiders who are providing the manpower and the intelligence and then understanding that the most rare of those four things is the intelligence and that's what insiders use to manipulate outsiders into funding their local wars you know you can see each of these developments and layers as i gathered more evidence and understood things like for a long time and i guess this is why it's so exciting for a long time in afghanistan all the time it was like peeling the layers off an onion like you peel one layer off, and you're like ah that's what it is and then you go and have a few more conversations you're like hmm peel off another layer and you're like ah that's what it is and then it's so on and so and it keeps going and i think now i've got to a point where my understanding is fairly stable but that you know has taken a long uh and like a couple of people who reviewed the book were like it, you know they can they've said that they could see in the book that it was like the sc the scales were dropping from my eyes like as i was going yeah, through this project yeah, i was yeah you know that's one way of, that's one way of describing yeah it. And, and 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 i think that's the that's the that's the benefit of having someone really understand the cultural context and and, and the book you're referring to is the uh, an intimate war an oral history of the Helmand conflict 1978 to mm. 2012 mm. which then ultimately got you into some hot water right um so it was it, 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 for it to even be published right that was the uh, that was the big challenge even though it, if i understand it correctly it was uh, essentially the phd your phd thesis reworked into a publishable book is that you know you tell us a little bit about yeah the phd that the army had paid for yeah um, yeah right so after so after my six years in the full-time army i went back to the reserves and then I um, went traveling in Africa for a while and then I came back and by that point I'd um, but it got a, a publisher had a, it was like, oh, we'll take that. And um, obviously you need to rewrite it a bit, but it was, you know, make it a bit less PhD and a bit more narrative-y. Um, and um and obviously you know it it was the phd that they paid for which they had <laughs> i can't tell you the praise <laughs> that i got from the army when because they turned it into a you know everyone sends it around to everyone it's all part of their big lessons learned thing blah 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 yeah, right. um and and as a phd right it automatically is a public document like it goes on the shelves at the university of london blah 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 you know so it's all out there and you know i'd been obviously very careful that everything in there was unclassified and um you know didn't draw on any of the more sensitive piece of information that i was uh, and I know that that's the case because I developed most of the, uh, sorry, all of the information that went into that. But mm. and and I classified it myself as unclassified because these yeah. were simple conversations. These were overt conversations that yeah. I had with lots of Afghans. Um, and that was all fine. And then, unfortunately, the army had a bit of a knee-jerk reaction, and. Um, um, said that I needed to submit it for vetting. And I said, well, here's another copy, but you've actually had it for about 18 months by this point. Um, and um, as, an, as an unclassified public document. And then they 
I feel so sorry for this guy. They got a, they got a lance corporal to read through the whole thing <laughs> and write down, you know, because obviously officers are too lazy to do that sort of thing themselves, mm-hmm. and write down like where it where it broke the official secrets act. And um, his conclusion, which I know because whilst I was being hauled in over the coals, they <laughs> they let they let me look at some email chains to demonstrate that I needed to wind my neck in and not publish the book but unfortunately they scrolled down too far and this guy's conclusion was there's nothing in here that breaks the official secrets act but it's really really embarrassing yeah yeah and and up until that point i was quite willing i was willing to be amenable see i mean it's like how can we you know what do you want me to do like blah, blah, blah. and then i read that and i was like oh man this is bullshit you're just like what's not happening is you're not banning this or or bullying me to not publish it because of your embarrassment that's why we end up with really poorly executed wars um so then i got a direct order from the assistant chief of the general staff not to publish right okay that's pretty senior (laughs) which i I thought was an odd i thought it was an odd use of a military Mm. order but yeah yeah um but I don't know. I think he misunderstood like the relative value in my mind of publishing the book mm. versus um, my reserve commission. And so uh, I resigned. And then um, a friend of mine was the defense correspondent for the times. So I rang him up and said, I don't know, you might be interested, mate. I was just thinking he'll probably get like a small, a small thing on page 15 or something and anyway it was a slow news day so it was the front page of the times <laughs> of london uh, mod tries to ban it no army tries to ban its own book oh wow wow okay talk about some uh, f- you know free advertising for you though jeez oh wow it was amazing and yeah so i spent the next two days like traipsing around tv studios and doing media like uk us internationally same thing happened when it came out uh, a bit later on in Denmark. Um, front page there, lots of Danish troops in Helmand. Um, so yeah, and you know it's it got yeah got some good reviews and has has done well. A lot of people have said that it's a you know a really good example of the recent crop of books um, that have come out in this sort of recent period of Afghanistan. So that's that's nice. Um, and it's kind of giving a voice to all the Hermanis, right? They were kind of yeah. 90% illiterate. So yeah. the only way to tell the story of the war from their side was to sit down and talk, drink tea and talk to them and then write that down. Like everything that's written about Afghanistan is written yeah. by outsiders, yeah. like yeah. 95% of it. Yeah, yeah. And I think and that's, so a, that's actually, a, yeah, sorry, go on. No, 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 I was just going to say. I mean, I think that that that's very common for most conflicts, right? I mean, it's the it's it's generally the outsider uh, that comes in as the peacemaker, peace builder, um, knows how to democratize, make it a liberal democracy in most cases, and uh, we're going to try and you know include you into this uh, Western idea of what yawn, yawn, yeah. yawn, yawn. Yeah. Those yeah. are all the narratives, but they're bollocks. Like they don't they don't match the actual behavior of the countries intervening the diplomats the soldiers on the ground like it's i think they believe them in fact i know yeah, they believe yeah, them because yeah, i've worked right, with yeah. hundreds of people who you know 
both in the army and after the army, they believe what they're saying, but their actions don't match their words. And so the, you know, the natives, if I can use that term, in somewhere like Afghanistan or wherever, look at this divergence, this dichotomy between what the outsiders are saying and what they're doing. And they're like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, and so with the respect to all the literature in Afghanistan, there was so much money swilling around the Afghan war, like trillions of dollars, that you don't need much than a tiny percentage of trillions of dollars to generate hundreds of thousands of pages of reports and books and all that kind of stuff. And funnily enough, it's all written in the vernacular of whatever the dominant whatever the whatever the paradigm is of the people who are paying for it all which is counterinsurgency good bad blah 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 the the you know colloquially known as the uh, self-licking ice cream right it's just a revolving <laughs> door of uh, of you know the narrative that keeps uh, uh, you know promoting itself um, uh, for the for the sake Develop, of and development it. consultants go and become development lecturers at university go and set up their own firms then go and work for usa then you know soldiers become soldiers then they become private military contractors they become academics that write about conflict he says speaking that stuff you know so on and so forth like, but, it's a, but it's a monstrous industry right i mean the the obviously war is a huge industry but peace building peacemaking development work it's a monstrous industry um you know a, well, both you and I have done some work in there. You've done a lot more than I have, but it, it, my eyes were open. I spent some time in Iraq uh, as a development consultant, and 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 it was just insane the the figures uh, that were being thrown around uh, uh, for various consultants coming in to you know just retell the same story in a different you know, in a different way uh, to apply the same solution in uh, you know <laughs> in, in. I don't I don't mean to be cynical, but I'm yeah. amazed that those people can look you straight in yeah. the eye. Because far from, you know, beyond being ineffectual, most of the time they're exacerbating the conflicts. Because, you know, I'll give you an example. Like, the, you're a development con con contractor, consultant, going into Baghdad, right? And your job is to, I don't know, write a paper on the opportunities for reform in the interior ministry or something right uh you know you're nodding because probably you've seen but yeah yeah, yeah exactly uh, yeah, yeah some yeah, other yeah. fucking bullshit yeah. <laughs> right yeah. you know which is written with zero knowledge of iraq not written by an arabic speaker someone who's literally just come in for a week <laughs> spoken to like four people all of them white they've done their token trip to the ministry to talk to the minister right and but to get them in the country um you probably had to you know bribe the embassy or the whatever to get the visa yeah, done. yeah. pay the fixer yeah right. yeah. yeah paid the fixer right so you know you've, yeah. You've, you've, yeah, yeah i'm sure you've had this experience yeah. And yeah, at the same time, there'll be someone else writing papers on how to how to stop corruption in Iraq, right? <laughs> and uh, you know, someone else will be writing papers on uh, uh, you know ensuring civilian control of the military or so you know all this stuff. And 
actually all of it's disconnected none of it is done with any knowledge of of why the systems are like they are they're like here's what the system is like in the iraqi interior ministry here's what we want it to be like therefore these are the reforms they need to do but there's no real knowledge of why the systems are like that because they don't understand how iraq works right and then because of those they will try and then institute some of those reforms via basically bribing people with development funding if you create a directorate of internal policing whatever you know that's one of the reforms we need you know we need a corruption watchdog if, if you institute that we will you know pay for x y and z new photocopies in the office or whatever whatever it is right and then <laughs> And then this sort of game goes on because really what the consultants are interested in, all the development agencies, is going home at the end of their time, being able to point to something and go, I did that, right? Yeah. But if everyone's doing that, at the end of 20 years, you have this situation like we're having in Afghanistan now. When you look at Afghanistan, after 20 years of foreign intervention, all right, trillions of dollars. And what was the statistic I heard on the radio this morning? Half of Afghan children are malnourished. We're not talking about have they got access to the latest antiretrovirals. We're not talking about are they going to university. They don't have enough food. After 20 years, half of Afghan children do not have enough food. So that tells you something about what Western intervention achieves. Mm, mm. So what, what should we do? What I mean, it, it, I mean, that's a, that's a monstrous question and you've been very kind with your time already, but uh, you know, yes, but where, what should we do where? Cause everyone's got, everywhere's got a different. Well, well even in, in, in Afghanistan, what should we have done in Afghanistan? Uh, so I, I, there was potentially an argument right at the beginning after the toppling of the taliban or rather once the taliban fucked off mm. and the bond conference there was a window of opportunity there to really reshape what was going on and in the bond conference what they did you know just to remind your listeners was they basically enshrined a government in afghanistan by one of the factions of the civil war the northern alliance and kind of put a figurehead on Karzai, who was from the Pashtun, the southern Pashtun, who traditionally produced the leaders of Afghanistan. And then they supported that government to fight the Taliban and Al-Qaeda remnants and then, you know, rebuild the country. Mm-hmm. But of course, in a civil war, if you come in and end the civil war and then immediately start supporting one side in that civil war, probably what you're going to do is fuel that civil war and or at least reignite it right and that's basically what happened you know everyone waited for a couple of years to see what would happen and then by 2004 things were starting to slide away the sides were starting to divide because you know one of the main reasons was that government in inverted commas that the international community supported were utterly rapacious in the way that they pursued their previous enemies. 
from the civil war in the way that they accumulated profits from the drug trade in a way that they stole international development money and and effectively the um international community basically americans didn't keep an eye on that and allowed it to happen because their only goal was to pursue taliban and al-qaeda remnants right accepting that the taliban and al-qaeda are pretty different things with pretty different goals and just because they had a marriage of convenience uh, during one period of time does not mean that they are joined at the hip forever mm-hmm. again think yeah. about our earlier yeah. conversation about ideology yeah, right, right? You yeah. know, from yeah. western point of view are oh, they're both crazy islamists yeah fundamentalists whatever so they're obviously the same thing you know black so and white their enemy yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 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 So there was a, I think there was a window of opportunity, and I've got no idea whether this would work, right? But it seems seems to me like it would have been a bit more successful than what we did, which was to accept that at that point in two thousand and one, Afghanistan had been at war for about twenty five years, give or take, depending on when you date the twenty three years, you know, from the revolution. But really, there was conflict brewing before that, um, and say, well, you know, twenty years civil war country utterly devastated utterly 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 devastated it's a golden opportunity there to perhaps look at some sort of international administration so the un one assumes would head that up uh probably led or certainly the on the ground face of it would be led by uh, uh muslim countries um indonesia um, you know, I don't know whether Indonesia would be game for this, but you know, this is a this is a major Indonesian country, but out of the region, right? So that's an obvious benefit. Obviously, it'd be international, right? So you have other other countries involved. Um, wouldn't have any countries in the region, so India, Pakistan, China, border, bordering countries wouldn't be part of that. They have a, they have a vested stake in uh, in, in how, it, yeah. how it unfolds. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then you know, it'd be funded largely by um, you know. Europe, America, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, and the, the idea would be that you'd have some sort of international administration. You know, we've had them before in Cambodia and, you know, there's and, and where you're from as well. And, um, and the idea is that you go into it with a, uh, effectively a, peace brokering mentality where you accept that there's okay we've got a whole bunch of frozen conflicts now over land and whatever that have been swept aside or caused by the last 20 years of war and we need to from the bottom we need to start we need kind of looking at law we need to kind of Mm, get people mm. where they're from we need to provide basic services all that kind of stuff but critically the most important thing we need to do the two things are as always we need to provide some sort of justice mechanism that's accepted that enables things like land disputes to be solved and and potentially we need to talk about war crimes are there any war crimes what are we going to do about that is are we going to punish them are we going to have a truth and reconciliation what are we going to do and by the way there are kind of strong antecedents for this in pashtun culture around this so it's not like maybe starting with a blank slate and then we need to look at, you know, security as always. Um, security and justice, the two most important things. And security needs to, as always, be impartial, um, like justice. And so 
how would you provide that? Um, well, one thing Afghanistan's got is manpower, but uh, officership could perhaps be provided by, I don't know, Nepalese, Indonesians, you know, something like that. Uh, but I think um, it, 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 it seems again the, the undercurrent there is this this idea of, of of understanding the local context. You know whether that is building a sense of identity. So if we're talking about so Indonesia, uh, the kind of Islamic uh, cultural understanding and nuances, that that would ultimately be a much easier bridge to build or to or to create a sense of belonging between or or almost an in group between you know those coming from outside. Uh, with those uh, inside, in other words, to then, you know, lead by example and 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 help shape uh, the future of a of a country. In this case, Afghanistan. Right? Is that is is that is that because that's a, I think that's you know when we look at your book, why we fight, that seems to be the subcontext that there are ultimately you know two two reasons: the status and and belonging um, are the key motivators uh, to help mm-hmm. us solve a number of. Uh, critical uh, uh, social problems, which maybe we'll touch on in a second. But is that yeah, is well, that is that where you well, where you go? I think what you end up with, right, with this situation is so you basically start out with kind of manpower being provided by Afghans, but all leadership and administrative functions being provided by this international body, right? Rather than having an Afghan government, which is by the way one side in the civil war, and an international coalition, and they're separate. No, no, they're one thing. And yeah. gradually what happens as you train up cadres of Afghan civil servants, you lift up and off until eventually you're then over 20 years or something, you're moving into in the latter part of that period, um, you know, elections and all that kind of stuff. But instead what we did was we... Um, went in, created an Afghan government, immediately set it up to become the protagonists in a conflict, which we then support blindly supporting them and pursuing their enemies, exacerbating all the divides in the country. We tipped loads of money without understanding what we're doing and then had elections and, oh, God, it's a democracy. We and, every, and everyone that was against it, even, you know, remotely was uh, a Talib, right? Regardless, right? It was such a clear yeah. line, you know, that... Uh, yeah, was, yeah. rather than that guy in the government who you're supporting stole my land. Like, I have a... I'm, I'm on the side of justice here, right? None of that was recognised. Oh, he's a Talib. You know, and then also not putting the appropriate emphasis on justice and security. Instead, focusing on other things... And I'm not saying these other things are important, health, road building, these things are all important. But if you don't get to grips with solving people's problems, justice, and providing a low level of security that stops interpersonal violence, you're fucked. You can build as many schools as you like. It will all backslide. And that's exactly what's happened. There was basically zero reform of the Afghan justice system. The police were the most rapacious militias around supported mm. by the international community yeah and that's tragic and and i think this is um if we've got a, a couple more minutes um uh, the, the problems you're referring to uh, you you explore uh in depth in your book while we fight which is a book i highly recommend i, I recently finished it um and you talk about the five basic problems that need to be solved yeah. uh, which therefore create individual human violence in groups and one of them being identity next one being hierarchy then trade then disease and group mandated punishment and you, you've touched on some of these um you maybe explore a little bit more about those and why, why they why they are so important 
Yeah, sure. So, look, I mean, in Why We Fight, I talk about um, the fact that, you know, there's the benefits to living in groups, right? And there's benefits to living in bigger groups versus smaller groups. Um, but that, that's only the case if those groups function and they are coherent. And they only function and are coherent if they solve those five problems. So identity, like who are we? Where's the boundary of the in-group and the out-group? By the way, all of these five problems have uh, have mechanisms uh, in our cognition that help us sense them on a subconscious level. So identity, well, that's the in-group, out-group mechanism. I just so, so in other words, you mean rooted in evolution in a sense, even that we, we just can now cognitively formulate them as a as a as a, as a cognitive. Uh, understanding, but it's very much rooted in, you know, things that we weren't necessarily uh, consciously aware of uh, in our in our, yep. in our past. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. They're, they're subconscious mechanisms. Yeah. Um, that, and I'll sort of mention them as I go through each one. They're subconscious mechanisms that, um, as we have grown as a species from tribes to tribal confederations to chieftainships to, you know countries to you know quasi global empires that we have now as we've grown through those we've consciously constructed systems of thought that reflect those five problems and those emotional uh mechanisms so you know religion is about solving those five problems really and or at least it speaks to those five problems in a way and democracy or capital you know all of these systems of thought that we have these societal frameworks if you like speak to those five problems they offer way they say these are our five solutions to those five problems if you believe in monarchy or whatever you know that that's or you're british this is how the british have solved those five problems so you've got uh, identity right which is in groups out groups and that's kind of who are we what are the costs of membership of our group what does it mean to be british you know, and who we're not right yeah who who we're not importantly as well right <laughs> absolutely yeah. we are not french yeah yeah um, yeah yeah and i i can say that i'm such a, <laughs> um, i'm such a francophile that i, but, I feel well, just just like just like just like we can say uh, we're not british <laughs> absolutely well we as in the australians yeah 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 i'm, I'm assuming that identity like, yeah. when you say we <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm a man of many faces yeah yeah I found the same thing when I was one of my interview subjects for my PhD was Helmandis who lived in London. Mm, and mm. Um, it was really touching because they would use the phrase we. And I didn't always know whether they meant we British or we Helmandi, which is touching. Anyway, mm, yeah. uh, identity in groups, out groups. Right. Who are we? Yeah. And that's that mechanism, right? That in-group out mechanism. Hierarchy is about who's in charge, why are they in charge of our group? And kind of critically, what do we accept as the, the distribution of wealth, if you like? Like every society accepts that those in charge, pretty much every society kind of has a tacit acceptance of those in charge should have a bit more, right? And obviously the question is to, to, to what degree, you know, obviously that's the key question and that's, you know, a lot of politics is about that. 
national politics. And a lot of instability. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah, And a lot of instability, absolutely. Um, I'm just putting a proposal together for a book. Now, you heard it here first, exclusive. Oh, right. Exclusive. For, uh, on the Voices of War. <laughs> um, um, exclusive. I'm putting together a proposal for a book about World War Three. Mm, um, I think okay. that in the 2020s, we've probably got more than 50% chance of ending up in a global conflict. Um, and one of the factors that I talk about, I talk about seven structural trends, um, and one of them is um, inequality. Anyway, we diverge. Yeah, so yeah. The, the mechanism that underlies that hierarchy thing is, is status. We all sense status. We've got hormonal pathways that enable us or, or cause us to seek status. And we've got... Um, we're very, very good at judging, you know, within a quarter of a second, people are able to judge the status dynamics in a room, like who's, you know, it's really, really interesting. Yeah, so who's pulling like, the strings, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's, yeah, who's running yeah, the strings, yeah, yeah. Uh, trade is really about, um, I mean, I've called it trade, but at its most basic, it's like reciprocity, right? If I hunt for if I if I capture this bison and share it with you um, over the next month, if you catch something and I don't get anything, then I'm, I'm I'm expecting to get something back, right? And that idea of fairness, like, is it a fair trade? Yeah, 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 is, yeah. Is, and that's been demonstrated. You know, this isn't just humans have this. Like chimpanzees, they've done experiments on chimpanzees where, with grapes, chimpanzees love grapes. Mm, mm, mm. And if you give like grapes to some and cucumbers to the others, like they sense the un the injustice. Like they, yeah. The injustice yeah. is fascinating. And obviously all these things are interlinked, like who we are, who's in charge, what's fair. These are all kind of interlinked, right? But so is the rest of your brain, right? <laughs> They're not separate. It's not like my arm moving up and down and my leg moving from side to side. In your yeah. brain, all the mechanisms are conjoined. Um disease. Uh, fascinatingly when I wrote the book in 2008 and it's coming out in paperback this year um, why we fight um, so watch for that but when I wrote the book in 2018 I was like god disease I mean it is really important the, the, the <laughs> disgust mechanism is what underlies it um, but basically it's about when you've got groups of humans who share genetics right as people are related then disease is very easy to spread amongst you know so how we deal with health and disease and what the rules are and who we let in and don't let in yeah, to yeah. protect ourselves from disease, <laughs> yeah. uh, sexually transmitted disease, all that kind of stuff. So that's really important. And I was like, well, should I include that? It's like a major shaper. And then obviously COVID yeah, happens. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> Pretty <laughs> glad yeah. Yeah. And then finally, punishment. Like how do we, of all those rules above, how do we punish people if they break the rules? Um. And so, and that's, uh, again, is like, what do we feel is a fair punishment? Like most societies don't think we should punish, you know, if you commit a crime, but you're declared insane, we shouldn't punish you, right? In France, there's la crime passionnelle, right? Where if you murder someone, if you walk in on your wife and she's with yeah. another man and yeah. you kill him, yeah, yeah. Crime that's a passion, yeah. circumstance yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. in France, yeah. right? So that's what they, you know, and most people don't, we shouldn't like, I don't know, uh, punish or no, we should care for elderly and disabled people and stuff like that, you know? So these rules on care and punishment and what we think is appropriate in our society. Um, so we need to manage that as well, because otherwise it feeds into 
imbalances in society. And those are the four, five, sorry, um, um, things that we need to get right. And if you look at laws, I this is always the thing I say to people they should do is they should go and go and put up any law you like, right, on the Australian government website. Any law will be a derivation of one of those five problems, if not more than one of those problems. That's really interesting because I mean, it, 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 you know, as you as you're talking, I mean, it, 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 I can naturally recognise this in a lot of the conflicts that, that I've studied or, or or gotten to know intimately, but. You know, as, as you were talking now, and, and perhaps this is easy, right? It's a very easy target, but I think it helps it helps contextualize it. You know, just thinking back, given, you know, that we're recording this in, in you know, late January 2021, um, what's happening in the US with, you know, Trumpism and Trump and, the, you know, the, the, the cult of Trump ultimately, you know, the storming of the Capitol and so on, you know, it really fits all of these so neatly, right? Well, first, when we're looking at the identity component, you know, who's in and out, I mean, it's so it? obvious. What does right? it mean to be American? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, right? I mean, it's a, and, and, and the, the, the tr you know, the sense of the loyal, true American that's going to stand up for, you know, uh, against the stolen election and so on. And, and, and you know, the, the, the narrative that that embraces you know, never mind. So you, you, you tell me, mate, because I grew up in, you know, London, right? So I, whilst I've experienced war and, and studied them and all the rest of it, I never grew up in it. Do you, and I've never lived in a country as it was descending the civil war, although I was in South Sudan as it was descending the civil war. So <laughs> have you, like, when you look at the US now, do you think, and particularly the political narratives, politicians, militias, that kind of stuff, do you look at that and think, I've seen that before. Mm. Well, I've, I've actually been funny you say that because I've started dra drafting an article called "The Balkanization of the U.S." Right? It's ex it's <laughs> it, it very much and, and it's very much to play on the words, right? Because the 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 term balkanization, you know, as as we you know know, has come into the kind of vernacular yeah. into usage because of what's happened in the Balkans, yeah. and that you know signifies that it's the breaking up of a whole. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, you know, and and many have yeah. have now discussed. Uh, whether the US is the brink of... But the causes are a bit different, right? Because, like, the, as far as I can tell, as, as it seems to me that the main thing that's got the America to where it is now is it exposed its society and economy to the ravages of the globalised economy without appropriate health, education and social welfare supports in place yeah, <laughs> for that yeah, population. Right. And that has led to... That's the cause uncause. And then that has led to these other like ideological polarizations yeah. and what does it which, mean to be American? Which are merely narratives to justify that, right? They're, they're merely narratives not, to explain it, right? They're, they're not necessarily, which is why I think there's actually a lot more similarity in, in, in what happened in the Balkans. It, you know, while the context different, it's a completely different, different economies, different setup, different uh, nations, different size, you know, different geopolitical dynamics that surround it, and so on and so forth. But I think it still comes down to, you know, even you know the five reasons that you given. You know, trade uh, was certainly one. There was there was a massive aspect of the you know fall down or the breakup of Yugoslavia, or you know, even identity that was again imposed. Yeah. So it seems to me like, and I really don't know the Balkans that well. Um, it seems to me that the similarity between the Balkans and between the US is that there's a population disquiet, right? In the Balkans, it was caused by the breakup of Yugoslavia and that sense of identity. And in the US, it's been caused by just half of the country being economically devastated by globalization and the other half getting very rich out of it. 
And so that has led to levels of societal disquiet, which causes people to disattach from the old identity and to reattach to new identities. And people are competing for those identities. So in the Balkans, it was, you know, leaders of different ethnic groups. And in in the States, it's the Proud Boys or whatever, you know, the right wing militias, the Antifa, the Democrats, you know, the politicians have got their own militias, you know, amazing. And so well, they're, they're, some, know, I mean, the, some of them are calling themselves now Trump's army, you know, the Brad boys and that sort of, I mean, they're literally embracing these kind of martial narratives, you know, that, you know, and, and yeah. obviously have, have, have very much showed that uh, on the 6th of January. I mean, it's a, it's fascinating. Yeah. And so I just wonder if that's the real commonality, like you can have a disattachment from a sense of belonging or a group that you belong to for various reasons and I guess after Yugoslavia broke up, I guess the economy crashed, right? Well, I mean, it crashed uh, beforehand, right? It was it, there was part of uh, the right. lead up to it. And that was, was part of the okay, great. Part of it, right? okay. So it was huge yeah, debt, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, yeah, that, right. that Tito Tito uh, had and carried, and you know, the fall of the Soviet Union certainly helped because it was a huge uh, yeah, economic okay. attachment to, to the funding, East. yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and of course to the to the West. Um, the, the yeah. oil crisis had a huge impact, uh, which okay. really okay. mounted the debt. So the the economic crisis preceded the kind of uh, identity crisis, right? Okay. Because it was so the, that is identical to what's yeah, going that, on that, in the US. That, that's right. So, and, and which which is why which is why I think there are far more, like you're saying, far more similarities because it was it, it, you know you could almost and in fact I think I've read somewhere people comparing even a few years back uh, Milosevic to Trump, right? It's kind of you know hmm. uh, 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 he's he's hmm. he's hitting the nerves uh, of those who are in many ways left behind or those who are in, in some way feel uh, uh, that a grave injustice. Um, you know, they've experienced a grave injustice at the hands of this other, right? Now, in the Balkan case, the other was the other ethnic groups uh, who, A, wanted to, you know, separate from this national whole and were stealing and, and taking more than they deserved. Uh, and, of course, in the US, that's very much, you know, the, the technocrats, the, the, the swamp, right? It's the, the 1% and et cetera, et cetera, uh, which... You know, superimposed globalization on that. You know, it's a. I heard an interview on the World Service that I thought was fascinating, um, where this uh, BBC journalist was interviewing a Trump supporter. Um, before, it was before the sixth, and it was talking about, you know, the whole because he was still saying it was a stolen election and all that stuff, and this guy was saying that it was very heartfelt he was saying that he'd never really felt you know for for decades now no one had been looking out for him and and then trump came along and started looking out for him and he started choking up and crying such was the force of his emotion about how he felt that trump had was finally speaking up for him like nobody was speaking up for him and Obviously, obviously, millions of people like him, and and uh, when I heard that, I thought, "Fuck, America's mm, got mm, mm, like mm, U.S. Mm. civil war is a major yeah. conflict risk over yeah. the next decade. Yeah. Major conflict, yeah. yeah, especially given how many uh, you know weapons there are in the country and the availability of weapons, which of course is one contributing <laughs> key contributing factor." 
to to the likelihood of violence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 it it, it is amazing. I mean, it, it, but in many ways, you know, like you were saying, if you start stripping back the onion, right? I mean. You know, uh, uh, the International Crisis Group, it's really funny. They, they've kind of released, you know, 10 document, 10, 10 wars to watch or whatever. Uh, and, you know, they were thinking, but should they have, uh, you know, America or not? And uh, I listened to a, to, to a podcast about it, you know, the, the, the need to actually now study the US as a potential conflict. Uh, which, you know, as the beacon of democracy, as the, you know, uh, as the land of the free and the home of the brave and so on, uh, it, it's a fascinating, fascinating place for the, for the world to be. Uh, terrifying place for the world to be. Like a US civil war, civil wars tend to suck in outsiders, right? Unless they're in places that nobody gives a fuck about. Excuse me if you're you know, from a small country. But civil wars like that the inevitably will suck in outsiders and at, at a minimum central america mexico and south america are likely to be drawn into um that conflict i i i don't really see how canada can fail to not at some point not be pulled into like a major civil war in the u.s I don't really understand. I don't know. Like, you know, people might in Europe and, you know, in East Asia decide to stay out of that. But, uh, you know, at a minimum, I would expect the Americas to be drawn into mm. that conflict. And that, you know, that's a billion people. And then the flow on effects, you know, from, from that globally, you know, whether it's been trade or, or in just reputation or, uh, uh, you know, uh, or, or wow. even the, the, you know, the, the absence of uh, an America on the global stage, of course, that vacuum will be filled by um, by. Yeah, by so other anyway, states, you need right? somebody, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. you know, you, you need somebody to kind of. You need a framework, like yeah. everything. You need a framework, yeah. and you yeah. need something or someone to enforce it. Yeah, that uh, solves these five problems, which are which are which I find fascinating. I mean, I think this is a really, really. This was a, a really fascinating read, and I think it does explain a lot. Uh, in how the world functions, um, you know, as you said, pull up any law, and I think it'll fit. Um, will we always need to fight, Mike? Is it? I mean, we know it's a human condition, right? Um, but you know, is it? Is it? Is it an enduring one? Do you, do mean, we... do you mean group? Do you mean group fighting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think that actually, I think basically, if you look at human macro history, um, we've the levels of violence have gone down, mm, mm. relatively speaking. In absolute terms, they've gone up because the population has gone up. But actually, in terms of like deaths per head, they've gone down massively. And, and the reason they've gone down massively is because of we live in bigger groups than we used to, right? There's an inverse correlation between levels of violence and group size. Groups go up, levels of violence go down because, by definition, groups internally are cohesive in some, yeah, 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 absolutely. And there's an entity that keeps them together, yeah. Yep. And if there are bigger groups, there are less of them, which means there's less chance of war starting accidentally, right? And this happens all the time. People think that war is like a deliberate design. More often than not, it just underlying structural trends get triggered by random events, right? You know, everyone talks about World War One being about. Ferdinand, Sarajevo, all the rest of it. But actually, if it wasn't that, something else would have sparked it off. There were huge structural trends in Europe at that time that were leading to... It was just a spark, ultimately, that lit it all Absolutely. up. Absolutely. 
absolutely. Um, and so I completely forgot what was your question. Do we always need to fight? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, right, you've got this macro history, lower levels of violence, bigger groups, right? We're now at a stage in 2020 of um, being on the cusp of a global society. It might not seem like it, but that's, we've sort of been there for the last 50 years. Like the nation states, the last successful level of, organization that we've gone to we've got some supernatural stuff supranational stuff like the eu and trading blocks and ECOAS and stuff like that um but they're not fully successful in the sense of solving the five problems like the nation state was right and so the question is perhaps we'll jump to a regional level where those five problems are solved at a regional level or perhaps you know the eu is definitely having a good go at that um, or perhaps we'll jump to a global society. The problem is at the moment, right, we've got loads of problems that, that fit between those two levels that aren't being solved, that can't be solved at a national level and aren't being solved at a global level. Migration, data sharing, collapse of maritime ecosystems, climate change, terrorism, international tax evasion. Like I could just go on and on and on. There's so many problems that are building up in the system because we can't solve them at the national level and we won't solve them at the global level. Mm, mm, mm. Um, so it seems to me we're at a, which is why I'm writing this book, right? About World War Three. we're at an inflection point. We either need to get our act together on a global level and start solving problems, or we will end up in a major war. Yeah, because the tensions uh, are building, right? Just like you used the example of World War One. I. I mean, the tensions were building and the tensions are, I mean, for anybody even remotely uh, uh, keeping abreast of what's happening yeah. globally, uh, yeah. the tensions are building uh, in a number of different areas. And, you know, they are. What, you, what you're suggesting is that perhaps there will be another, you know, Ferdinand in Sarajevo, um, you know, that will ignite it all again, right? And the thing is, I think that here's the danger for me, is that modern political systems and, you know, the commentariat overprivileged rationality when it comes to war. They, um, you know, can pull up spreadsheets and whatnot that say, no, 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 you know, everything's getting better. We'll be fine. No one's going to go to war. That's too stupid. Like, <laughs> hmm. we've heard yeah. this before. What they fail to recognize is that war is actually an emotional act. It's not a rational act. Of course, it's not a rational act. Of course, it's not rational because if it was rational, we wouldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. Nobody wins, you know, Sun Tzu. There's no example of a nation that's benefited from prolonged warfare. True then, true now. Everyone gets poorer. Okay, so it's, by definition, it's not a rational act; it's an emotional act, which means that you can't predict it. And you know, the basic argument of the forthcoming book, I hope it wants you know, if the proposal gets accepted by the publisher, um, is that. Um, there are a number of structural trends in the world at the moment that are progressing. And I'm not going to pontificate about triggers because in a sense, that doesn't really matter. What matters is where these trends come together and increase fragility in the system. Hmm. Therefore, almost anything could spark it off, you know? And so that's really where I think we're at. And so, and obviously that fragility is caused by many of these problems that sit between the global and the national level. Um, and, you know, the problems, the, these global problems end up manifesting themselves within countries. 
So inequality in the US has been caused by, you know, China and Eastern Europe joining the labor in those countries, joining the global trading system, leading to deflation, leading to the people holding assets, getting richer and those working for wages getting poorer. Um, you know, global trends manifest themselves within countries, which then cause those countries to stop acting in a constructive way on an international level. They pull out of agreements, treaties, and that makes the system more fragile. And then politicians and leaders in those countries are forced to act almost as a way of re-establishing the coherence of their own nations, the disquiet felt within America, you know, through inequality or migration or whatever it is, uh, is reimposed by the clarity of war. War imposes emotional clarity because all of a sudden, remember, we come back to come back full circle, right, to where we started. War strips bare mm, yeah. and exposes the brass tacks. It leads to clarity. And so the disquiet that's being coming about in many countries and regions around the world through migration, climate change, inequality, etc. It, it, it can be re-clarified by war because then we know who we belong to. Yeah. And yeah. And, and who's a fight. Fo- yeah. And who we're fighting. Yeah. And yeah. who's in charge. Yeah. yeah. We know all this stuff. Well, I mean, and just, it, it, yeah. Sorry, go on. Well, well, you know, finally, like war tends to solve these problems, right? Yeah. War reduces inequality massively. If you think about it, war is about putting money into guns and firing them up and then it explodes and the money disappears. Yeah. Like it's literally yeah. a destroyer yeah. of capital by definition. So a pandemic, so a whatever, right? And so war does solve those problems. It reimposes clarity and it tends to solve the problems that cause the war to break out in the first place mm, mm. but the question is is there a better way of solving those problems without resorting to war and that i think is the big you know question of the 2020s and i'd, I'd put it at no better than 50 50 that we managed to escape it or that we managed to fall into it which is which is very sobering sobering thought and i think you know when you look at it in the context of you know even just trump's sentence of you know and you need to fight fight like hell or you won't have a country anymore um <clears throat> you know it really it really puts the emphasis on the importance of that because, you know, the regular person, you know, if you're looking at the bell curve, the 68% might look at that and go, oh, yeah, whatever. You know, that's just the, that's just rhetoric. Uh, well, it might be, but to the, you know, to the 12%, uh, you know, up front that are, that are drinking the Kool-Aid, uh, that is the ultimate call to arms. That is the, that's now we are, you know, lock and loaded, we're going. And, you know, it, it's... It, that 30% it's want yeah. emotional clarity, that's what they want. Simplify get, for um, me. Who's the who's the bad guy? Yeah. Yeah, and also who are we? Yeah. 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 <laughs> who are we? Who's the bad guy? Who's in charge? Ah, oh, so calming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. we can reimpose that clarity through social safety nets, enhancing their, you know, material prospects, retrading, all that kind of stuff. We can do all that kind of stuff. Um, but. I feel maybe too late in America. Like I don't know. We'll have to see. It's it's yeah. It's all there. Mike, it's been a fascinating chat. Thank you for giving me so much of your time. I really appreciate it. Um, Pleasure. Very sobering uh, 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 conversation, uh, but insightful uh, as every engagement with you. Thanks very much, mate. Appreciate it, and uh, stay safe. Thanks, Matt. You too. 
Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.